Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. been a good morning already, hasn't it? And yet we now get to go to God's Word. I'm excited for that. My name is Nate. If I haven't met you personally yet, uh, I look forward to one day doing that. And if you would come and introduce yourself, I would love to do that. I'd love to meet you personally in that way. Uh, We've been taking turns as a pastoral staff on preaching the Sermon on the Mount series, and uh, so uh, super excited for uh, my turn to be here today. If you're in the Myerstown campus or worshiping online with us today, welcome. Uh, We're super glad to have you as a part of uh, all of this here this morning as we dive into God's Word. And so if you have your Bibles, if you could turn them uh, to the book of Matthew chapter 6, we uh, move to the next chapter uh, in this particular Uh, sermon that Jesus has taught. Today we're going to be learning how to practice our righteousness. If we have faith in Jesus Christ, we've been given His righteousness, and now we get to act out of that, motivated by His righteousness, and today we get to learn more about that. But to help us understand uh, our trouble and our need for a message like this here today, I want to tell you a story. The story is told of a zoo that was noted for their great collection of different animals. One day, the gorilla died. And to keep up the appearance of the full range of animals, the zookeeper hired a man to wear a gorilla suit and fill in for the dead animal. It was his first day on the job, and the man didn't know how to act like a gorilla very well. As he tried to be more and more convincing, he got too close to the wall of the enclosure, tripped, and fell into the lion exhibit. He began to scream, convinced his life was over, until the lion spoke to him, be quiet or you're going to get us both fired. (laughs) Do you ever sense that you have to perform outwardly in a way that is inconsistent with the reality inside of you? That always creates a crisis. And yet we all do this. We all have internal motives that we think we have to hide and cover. Actually, the pathway to adulthood is the ability to hide what is inside and perform outwardly in a way that meets expectations and gains commendation from others. And so you begin to see where we're going here today, the the inconsistency between the inside and the outside. And as you begin to 
think about that topic, you probably fall into two categories. One, you're somebody who has grown up in a religious environment where you've been told that there are certain expectations and ways that you are to act and to perform, and yet you know Jesus has taught against the Pharisees and the hypocrites, and, and yet you kind of act like the Pharisees and hypocrites when you hear this kind of message. It makes you kind of angry. Or maybe you're there and you're like, go get him, pastor, Right? You're not the very religious type, and, and so you, you really hold authenticity so high that it's rather, you know what, I don't have to act religious in any way, and, and, and yet I think the Lord has something for both parties here today. Hang in with me as we think about the different kind of motivation that Jesus begins to teach us about in Matthew chapter 6. Now, if you remember, Jesus has been preaching the gospel of his kingdom, and he began with this thing that we call the Beatitudes. Actually, last summer we did a whole series about those Beatitudes, but that's really the introduction where he begins to show us how we can live differently, how we can live blessed if we understand the principles of a blessed life. We've covered those things, and, and then this, this summer we've, we've taken it further, and we're getting into the, further into the sermon. And so if you remember Jesus, Jesus is like the best preacher who's ever lived, and this is like his most popular, most well-known uh, sermon that he's ever delivered. And we're, so as we study this, I, I think it's so important that you understand kind of the, the way that the sermon moves. Jesus, being a good preacher, has an outline, if you will. Have you ever thought about the outline of the Sermon on the Mount? What you see is the Beatitudes is really the introduction where, we, where he, he much more seriously talks about gorilla suits and lions, Right? And yet, what we found is that, that what we find as we look at this is he starts with this introduction of the, of the Beatitudes, but then he gets into the main point, the main idea that he wants to make. Every sermon has a main point, and that's in Matthew 5, 17 to 20 or so. It, that's his proposition and his main idea where he says that your righteousness has to be greater than that of the, of, of the Pharisees, or you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he begins to unpack what that looks like. And we really, over the last couple of weeks, covered point number one where he says, the scribes have lowered the bar, bar of the law. It, it, yeah, I know you think that it's really high. It seems like they're really religious, but they've actually lowered the bar to what I actually teach about these things. And so really your righteousness has to be morally as high as the standard as perfection and holiness as that I, that I am. Then he moves into point number two, which we're going to start here today, where he says, this is how you live that out, and then we're going to get to point three later in this whole process. All of that to say that the main point that Jesus is trying to make in this sermon is in Matthew 5.20. Why don't you put your eyes on that? Let's read it together. Matthew 5.20 says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This incredibly high bar that Jesus sets now has a companion statement in chapter 6, verse 1, where he tells us not only does your righteousness, your moral standard, the way that you live, that not only is the bar set at perfection, but you have to live up to that bar. You can't lower the bar and, go, and, and say that it's, it's enough. You have to live to the highest of it. So look at 6.1. It says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Keep going. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. 
Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and stand at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. That's our text here this morning, and what I want you to see is that Jesus makes point number two in the sermon, the main point for this section in verse one, and then he illustrates that point in verses two to four, and, verse, and then in verses five and six, and then ultimately, he, down in 16 and 18, he's going to illustrate the same point as well, where Pastor Brett and Pastor Jerry are going to help us understand all that in the next couple of weeks. But Jesus here says that God rewards right heart motives, not religious activity. That's his main point. That's verse 1 right there. That's the second point of this amazing sermon. That He says God rewards right heart motives, not religious activity. And he uses three illustrations, giving, prayer, and fasting, to then help us understand what that is. And in all of that, Jesus is saying, you're being called to a different kind of motivation. So let me ask a question. How do we know we are living with right motivations? What's the grid? What's the metrics? What's the, what's the evaluation that helps me understand I'm living with the right kind of motivation? Well, Jesus teaches that we know that we're living with right motivations in three ways. And if you're taking notes, I would just say, to help you understand the grid, write these three things down. Number one, it's this. You need to check your heart motives. If we are going to live with a different kind of motivation, we first of all need to see what motivation is happening on the inside. Check what that is before proceeding to understand what the right motives is and how to do that. So Jesus begins with this warning. Notice he says the first word in English here, beware. <laughs> beware. It's a warning. It's the, actually the idea of a command that's calling for constant vigilance and watchfulness. So there's two different ways of reading this sign. If you think of like the sign on the fence post that says, beware of dog, right? A lot of us treat that as if the dog were the golden retriever that's just going to run up to you and kill you by licking you, right? Uh, beware of dog. It's not very serious because you have this dog and you have this friendship and you know how to relate to them and he's wagging his tail and he kills you with kisses, right? But what if the sign actually meant something different? What, what actually I think the sign really should mean, what if the sign meant there are trained Dobermans behind this fence? What happens is you go from being aware that there's a dog there to now being wary, Right? And that's what Jesus is intent by saying, beware. He's saying, beware, there's something serious. There's something dangerous that you need to be wary of, not just aware of, but wary of. And so what are we supposed to be aware of? Notice what he says. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Don't just be aware of that. Be wary 
of trying to live like a good Christian in a way that actually is motivated by other people seeing you and thinking well of you because, look at me, I'm a good boy, I'm a good girl, (laughs) right? Jesus here is speaking to his followers. He's not just speaking to a group of random people. His followers have gathered on the mountain. He's speaking to them. And then let me remind you, actually a number of decades later is when Matthew wrote this gospel and and is actually delivering it to the church in Jerusalem. And and he's helping the church understand you need to beware of something. So this is a message that's for us today. It's not just for a group that's on the mountain at some point. We need to beware of of practicing our righteousness in in this way. So we have to live out the reality that Jesus Christ is my Savior. I put my trust in Him. I believe in Him. How do I now act? Well, I know it's supposed to be different than when I acted like when I was just, you know, controlled by the world and myself and the devil. I now know I'm supposed to act differently, but it begins to create this crisis too, Right? Does that mean that I put on a gorilla suit of righteousness and pretend like I'm in the zoo? No. And so Jesus begins to teach us. And he teaches by saying that when we do acts of righteousness, when we act out our faith, when we act as believers, we should be asking an important question each time and all the time. The question is this. Why? Why am I doing this? What is your why for even being in church today? That's a good religious act. You've come to church today. Well done. What's your why? Why did you come to church today? Why did you give today? Why did you pray today? Why do you do the things that you know are the right things to do according to being a Christian? Is your motivation to do them to honor and glorify God? Or is it that you would somehow receive praise from somebody around you or maybe even just get to that spot where you just start feeling good about yourself? Notice what Jesus says if that's the case. If it's option two, he says, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And he goes on to illustrate it here, and we're going to look at this. He's going to say, you've got your reward. You wanted to be seen by men? Look, they've seen you. Great job. But he tips us off to something here, doesn't he? It's not so much this condemnation that you've received your reward as much as it's an invitation to see that there is a better reward that you should be seeking and that you should be motivated by. So this issue of motivation is really what Jesus is talking about. We need to define that a little bit. So I went and looked at the dictionary, and the dictionary said that motivation is this. It's the reason one has for acting in a certain way. It's the desire or willingness for someone to do something. It's the process that initiates, guides, and maintains my behavior. So it's something that happens inside of me that animates, brings to life in me some sort of action. And this motivation piece is incredibly important for a number of reasons. It it initiates, it guides, it directs, but it's also, crucially, it's what allows me to change my behavior on the outside. Does anybody want to be a little bit different on the outside? Does anybody kind of feel like there's some things on the outside that who you are that you would like to be different in, right? 
Well, it, it starts not with just putting a gorilla suit on. It starts with something inside of us. It starts with motivation. And the Bible tells us that there's a location for where motivation is generated and animated. Do you know what it is? The Bible says it's your heart. And it tells us a lot about our heart, actually. I would point you to one of the most important things it says about our heart. In Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, it says this. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Do you see how important the heart is? Like, like if I'm going to check my motivation, I need to understand what's going on inside of my heart. That's where it all begins. That's where the inside thing, where all the outside things begin to happen. So I need to understand the human heart. If I'm going to check my heart, I need to understand my heart. Now, you might be thinking, I get it. I understand my heart. I'm the one that has to live with it. And yet the reality is, I think many times it is a little bit of a mystery to us. We need to think a little bit about how God's designed humans and see why humans do what they do. For example, why does that sweet angel little baby that's born turn into this 18-month-year-old terror of a devil? What happened? Well, how did that happen? And, and more importantly, uh, not just little babies that we see in a distance, but, but why can't I stop lying? I know I'm not supposed to. I know the standard is honesty, perfection. But why is it that I still lie? And why can I not be as kind as I want to be and as I know that I should be? You see, we don't really understand our hearts because if we understood our hearts, we would understand how that could actually be different. But we all struggle with these things. Why do people do what they do? The Bible actually has a very simple biblical answer. It says, your heart is the thing that needs to be changed. You can't just wear the gorilla suit. What's on the inside, that's the thing that really matters is what Jesus says. And so we see here that heart is one of the Bible's most dominant themes. It's talked about over a thousand times in the Old and New Testament. But there's so much confusion about it because we don't know how to be kind and how to stop lying. And, and actually, a lot of the definition that we get about the heart comes from like Hallmark movies. And Valentine's Day, it's that perfect shape, little whatever, you know? Or maybe sports, ah, he's got so much heart. And yet in all of those things, I, I believe that is included, the Bible says so much more than that. It talks so much more about the heart. And so we need really a biblical anthropology. What is the human and where does the heart fit and how does that go together? And so I, I just want to maybe illustrate this a little bit for you. First, I want you to just notice that if you are human, there is an outside part of you, right? Everybody wave at me, all right? Everybody high five the person next to you. Everybody tell the person next to you, I love you. Now, you may have said that wearing the gorilla suit. <laughs> or it might be real. We don't know because just, we just see the outside thing and, and it seems like you love the person next to you. You've high-fived them. You've told them that you love them. But that may or may not be true because there's also an inside part of me, right? 
There, there's this internal part of me that the Bible talks about, and, he, and it tells us that that's where, when we think about the category of heart, it's like the idea of the mind. It's where I think and believe. It's my will. It's where I choose to decide. It's my emotions where I feel and, emo- and emote. And then it's my heart where these motivations of love and worship and fears and longings all begin. And you can't see that part. In all of this, though, recognize that as the Bible talks about your heart, it says that's the real you. It's not what you do on the outside. It's what you are on the inside who is the real and true Nate Newell, in my case, or whoever you are. And so we begin to see something rather important. The heart's on the inside, but can you know my heart? Can you know my heart? A little bit, right? You're all hesitating because you know the answer is no, not all the way, but yeah, I kind of can see some things there, right? Because the heart's kind of like an iceberg. My my heart, there's a part of it that appears above the surface, and you see that by how the actions appear and look, but but there's a whole other part of my heart that is below the waterline. It's way down deep, and you remember like icebergs, right? Like, Like the massive iceberg that you see floating in the ocean, is even more massive down underneath, right? And your heart's the same way. Your heart has this, there's some above the surface things, but there's, there's a whole bunch of below the surface things that are happening there. And the heart and the things that are below the surface is causing me to act. It's the source of all that I do. Proverbs 4 says it, for everything you do flows from it. And so we see that the heart has a part that we can see, but also a part that we don't. Hidden beneath the surface is where the real authentic functions actually happen. And so here's a scary reality. I just told you to picture my heart as if it were an iceberg, but our hearts inanimate objects only on Valentine's Day, okay? Hearts are, are, they beat and they move and they pump blood, and we kind of talk about the source of life being in the heart, and that's even a right spiritual category, because my heart isn't just this iceberg that has some above and a whole bunch below, but scary thought, okay? My heart is alive, and it's this creature that has tentacles on it, kind of like Medusa, right? And, and those tentacles, they have, they have suction cups on it. And, and so I have all sorts of desires deep down in my heart that, that's alive, that you can't completely see all, what all my motivations are, and my tentacles are reaching out, grabbing the things that I want, and drawing it to itself. When we think of the heart, we have to recognize it's not the Valentine's Day inanimate object. It's actually alive and... <laughs> The reality is, when I begin to really check it, is it's, it's kind of like a monster. And so when we check our hearts, we, we begin to see what Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us. The Word of God is always right about what's going on. It says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's a rhetorical question meant to say, Nobody. You can't understand my heart. I can't understand my heart in the completeness of it. 
I need something outside of myself to understand my heart. And, and so it, the, the verse goes on in verse 10, it says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Thank God for ver- verse 10. Nobody can understand their hearts, but there is somebody who can. It's the Lord. It's the Lord who searches the heart and tests the mind, the internal beings. He knows everything that is going on down in there. So that we see here, the point is this. My heart is extremely valuable because it's my driving force, and it's also very dangerous because I can't accurately know it, even though I make the defense all the time. <laughs> I know my heart. You don't know your heart. I know why I did this. You don't know why I did this. It's not completely true, is it, according to Jeremiah? We see that the heart is the real me, and it's what needs to be checked. It's the essential core of who I am, not really the sum total of my outward parts. There's motivations that are going on in the insides, and though we put huge emphasis on what our outer person looks like, we all recognize that it's really what's inside that matters most. Puritan Thomas Cramer has said it this way, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies, and I would add, the body does and the emotions then feel good about. The Bible says that the heart is the essential you. And Jesus is teaching, you need to have your heart checked. You need to check your motives when acting out of your righteousness. You might even be thinking, hey, I'm checking the mark. i am come to church today. That's a good thing. But maybe it was for all the wrong motives. We need to check our heart motives when we're acting out our righteousness. That's what Jesus is saying. And to check your heart, you need to know your heart. You need to know what's going on on the inside. Why? Because every righteous hack has at least three possibilities according to what Jesus is teaching here. He says, you might have come to church today because you're trying to impress other people. You're seeking the praise of men. Or maybe you came to church today because you just needed to kind of congratulate yourself a little bit. You needed to do something to feel good about yourself. You did a lot of bad things, and so you need to do something good today. And, or maybe you're doing it to honor and praise God. Nobody knows why you came to church today, but Jeremiah tells us you can check your heart, you can ask God to reveal that and show you why is it that I'm doing the things that I'm called to do. The principle that Jesus is teaching on here is that we need right motives, not just right actions. And so Jesus says, check your heart. And then he begins to illustrate to help us understand what happens next. He gives us illustrations on giving and praying and fasting. And today we're just going to look at the first two illustrations Jesus gives. A message later, we'll look at the fasting thing. But but what we see here today is that we need to look at each of these activities from kind of a negative side and a positive side. We need to see the negative way that these things could be done as well as the positive way. We're supposed to give, we're supposed to pray, but what are the motives for doing that? And when you check your heart and you realize, "Uh uh-oh, I got a problem. I did these for all the wrong reasons. Then what do you do? Maybe the category of question is this. 
how do I change my desires? How do I change my desires? How do I know that I'm being motivated in the right way? <laughs> That's so hard. But again, the Bible gives us clarity, and the Bible gives us an answer for this. It says that if you repent when you realize that you're doing the wrong things for the wrong re reasons, excuse me, you're doing things for the wrong reasons, when you repent and then you believe the truth about what Jesus has to say, you can then live with right motivations. And so that's what we're going to do here today. We're going to just take a look at these, uh, these particular illustrations that Jesus gives, and we're going to say, what do I need to repent of? Not just in these categories, but other righteous acts that I have been trying to do as well. And that means that this, we're going to have to rip off the mask. That's the second step. You need to not only check, out, check your heart, you need to rip off the mask. You got to get out of that gorilla suit. How, how do I get out of the gorilla suit is, is really what we're trying to do here. Well, you got to rip off that costume. you got to rip off the mask. Look at what it says in verse 2 and then in verse 5. In verse 2 it says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And then verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Jesus is saying here, just in summary, righteous activity motivated by being seen by others and applauded by yourself is empty. Now notice, Jesus is not saying that a desire for recognition is bad and you must be rid of it. Instead, he's telling them that they're seeking recognition and reward from the wrong place. They're practicing righteous acts, it says, for the praise of men and to be seen by men. And Jesus uses a label to describe anybody who does things out of that motivation. Did you see the label? He said it twice. What's the label? Shout it out. What's the label? Hypocrites hypocrites. Hypocrites, really the original word was intended to mean somebody who was an actor on a stage. Now in modern day we have makeup and CGI and all sorts of things to make actors look pretty cool, but back in that day if somebody was an actor on the stage they would wear a mask. So I want you to know today, I am the Batman. Hypocrites wear masks. Hypocrites mean that it's somebody who is divided between what's on their outside and the behavior and inner convictions and motivations that's on the inside. They try to appear one way, spiritual, and say they do outward acts to impress. On stage, they're wearing the mask. When I come to church today, you might have come to church today because you want to look in a certain direction. You want people to admire a certain thing about you. You want people to see. We're created with that longing. We're going to talk more about that in a second. Jesus says here, these people, they put their Batman mask on out on the streets and in the corners, 
And, and, and in all of that, they're, they're trying to give to the needy. They're trying to pray in a manner that actually it reveals that there's something different than the mask that they're wearing. It seems like they're super spiritual people. Look at them give. Look at them pray. It's not real. They've just put a mask on. And Jesus is calling this out, looking for the approval and recognition from others when they do their deeds of righteous acts is not the right way. There needs to be a different kind of, uh, of motivation. Now, I think... I didn't think today that we came here today and that it's rocket science that you should be true to what you really are on the inside. You don't even have to believe the Bible to know that that's the way it's supposed to happen, right? So, so Jesus is, is affirming this thing here, but I think what he's really getting into is something more complicated than just act on the outside like you actually are in the inside. I think he's actually looking at a deeper problem. You see, the root of human struggle is for righteousness and identity. Now, that's a pretty big concept, and I'm not sure that we've fully wrestled that down, but think about that just for a second, that, that the root of human struggle, the root of the things that are inside you is really that you want to be righteous and be known as righteous and seen as righteous. You want an identity. You want people to think well of you. And Jesus is saying, if we hope to find our identity and significance from those around us, then we only get what they're able to give us. Think about that. Everybody here is living in the now and not yet of the kingdom of heaven. And so we are both broken and beautiful. There's things that are about us that, are, that we still live out some really terrible things, but, but there's the beauty of the gospel that's been laid upon us. We're living in this tension of the already and not yet, and in that, if I'm looking for you to make my approval and my righteousness and identity seem full in my life, you're broken. Even though you may even have the gospel on you, you're broken. You can't give me what I'm even fully looking for. So why is it that we are constantly seeking this from other people? Why are we tempted to ask others to give us a feeling of value and purpose? They're fallen human beings too, looking to, and looking to them to give a significance. They're doing the same thing, looking at us. It's a broken cycle. And most of the time, what ends up happening when this, this occurs is that we stir up envy and jealousy in others while trying to show how giving and kind and how good at praying and how righteous I actually am. You know what that looks like, right? Envy. Envy is like, I don't want that person to have what they have. Jealousy. Jealousy is, I wish I were like that. And both of those things are disorders that cause our identity to be misshapen. And Jesus is saying, if that's what you want, do it that way. But there's something better. I'm inviting you to something greater. So in the giving example, Jesus, notice this, notice, he says in verse 2, thus, when you give to the needy, he says, when you give, he expects that there's going to be somebody who has put their trust in Jesus Christ, been completely a new creation, begins to live out their new creation motives, that they're going to be a giving type of person. So when you give, it says give to the needy. Some of your translations might say give, to the, give their alms, right? When you give your alms... 
The Bible talks about giving actually in three different ways. It says that we are to give our tithes, our offerings, and alms. We actually have this set up. If you were to go to the website right now and, and go to the Give tab, we would have a general fund, that's your tithes, an offering, that's like a whole bunch of special projects and ways that you can support the ministry of the church. And then there's a benevolence category and a food pantry category, that, that's because you're going to give to the poor. We, we understand that this is what we're supposed to do. Actually, thinking a little bit about this, Jerry would, Pastor Jerry just said at the beginning of the service, when Lisa made the announcements, this is how you can give we are making budget here at Mission Church without having an offering in the midst of the service. That shows that you know about giving. That shows that you know that, that God has taught you these things, and, and that's a great thing. And, and that, but here's the thing. We start, it's not because we want to look good, right? Hey, our church is meeting budget. Your church is not, right? We understand that Jesus is trying to teach something here about giving. Let me just remind you a few of the basics of giving. The Bible teaches that we are to give not out of guilt, but out of grace. We are grace givers. There's two whole chapters about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. It tells us we are to be cheerful, willing, faith-filled, joyful in our giving. And the overarching principle of giving is this. God owns 10%. Thank you. Preacher in the back row. Correct. God owns everything. Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It means, and all that fills it, the world and those that dwell therein. He has founded it. He has established it. He's the creator. He owns everything in the world. So this is what happens. If God owns everything, then I have something of God's it's not mine, I'm not the owner, I'm the manager, I'm the steward, that money. Which, we get confused sometimes about this, right? Because we get a paycheck and it has our name on it. <laughs> and the name means it's, it's mine. It's not yours, it's mine. I earned this paycheck, right? And we get to thinking that way, and that's an unbiblical way of thinking. Really, it should say, God owns this, but give it to Nate Newell to steward right? And, and so really how we handle money comes all from this idea that God owns everything. And, and then God tells us how we're supposed to handle giving. He says that we are supposed to give first to God. From that paycheck, the first thing that you do with that money is you, you give it to God and that you give it from the top. And then you give as an act of faith because actually giving first is hard. You want to check your motive? Do you give first to God or last to God? That's a motive checking question. And giving is not about amount. It's about your heart. But God has some things about giving. He says this. I want you to give me, if you have 10 units of something, I want you to give me a portion of that from the top first. So let's do something together here. I need your help. I'm not, like, I'm a preacher. I'm not a mathematician. Let's do some math together, okay? So let me give you the equation. You give me the answer. 10 minus 1 equals... You guys, you're all taught by the new math philosophy. You're not right. That, that's new math. Old math is 10 minus 1 is more. 
10 minus 1 is more because a heart that gives first to God, full of faith, believing, I can have nine but have more if my trust is in God, is the way that God has taught us how to handle the giving portion of it. And then he says, you get to steward the other nine parts too. And actually, I have some things to say about those other nine parts. Things like, you know what, you need to pay your taxes, you need to pay your bills, you should be saving for a future, there, there's other people that you need to take care of, there's other people that you should just give to. And oh, by the way, if you want to spend some for yourself, you can too. When we understand that giving is a spiritual exercise, and it's not about the amount, and it's not about the people help, but it's about us and God, we realize it's my heart issue. And, and in this passage, Jesus says, when you're giving to the needy, so, so now I'm giving 10 minus 1 and, I don't know, 10 minus 1 and a half, 10 minus 2, and I still believe that's more. <laughs> Almsgiving is meant to be one way that we participate in God's giving to creation. Jesus gave, the Jews gave alms because God commanded it. He commanded it because his, of his concern for the poor, and it's a concern that he desires that we share in as well. So when you give to the poor, I've got to tell you, there is a part of my life that's become very jaded to that. There, there's a part of my life that having grown up in third world countries and seeing poverty <laughs> that is unimaginable. But I live in it all the time and I see it all the time. It went from breaking my heart to just being something. It's kind of like when you live by the train tracks, you stop here in the, here in the train, right? So I even remember there was a time where I was in Manila, and Manila in particular is famous for that when you pull up to the stoplight, and by the way, the traffic is terrible there, so you're always at a stoplight, there's kids that are coming to your windows knocking, trying to sell you little gum and little packets of tissue, and, and, and just flat out begging. And I got to the part where I was so jaded about this, and I'm like, you know what, they're just being run by some mafia dude behind the corner over there. I'm not giving to them. Anybody ever kind of feel that way a little bit? You know, if they would just get to work, they could earn their own money, they wouldn't need mine. And yet Jesus says here, when you give your alms to the poor, expectation, when you do that, why would we do that? Well, in sharing with others, we come to recognize that we too are dependent upon the generosity of another, capital A, another. We are all receivers of grace, unable to give ourselves life and meaning. We can give to others because we learn to count on our Heavenly Father to take care of us. It's right to give alms. And once we understand that principle, Jesus then peels back the heart motive even further and says, why are you doing it? Why? Why do you do that? He actually says here, if you're doing it so that you can look good in front of others, that doesn't really count. Rather, if you do it for the applause of men, that, that's all you get. That's the wrong motivation. When you give in a public way to toot your horn, it says, with the trumpets, 
all you get is the recognition of others when a better reward is available. Think about the story of Barnabas in Acts chapter 4. Barnabas was known as a man who sold a field and gave all the money to, to the church to distribute among the poor. They were actually taking care of the poverty issue there. And then there was a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who were like, wow, look at everything, all the recognition Barnabas got. Now, Barnabas didn't do it for that recognition, but it was known that he did that. It's, it's not bad to give and that other people know about it. It's about why are you doing it? And Ananias and Sapphira did it because they wanted to look better. How do you know? Because they said that they gave everything when they only gave part, and God knocked them dead. See, motives are really important to the Lord. Motives are incredibly serious. When he says beware, he's not saying just know and be aware of this. It's saying be wary, check your life, check your heart, rip off the mask. What's your why when you give? What's your motivation when you give? Do you need to rip the mask off of that? Jesus then does the illustration of prayer. He says if you desire to pray so that you could be recognized by others, that's wrong. Actually, fascinating. Prayer is really our communion with God. And in our communion with God, we are supposed to speak to Him, not to those around us. But apparently what was happening is people were speaking to God, but they were doing it in a way that really it was intended to be a message to everybody else. And part of that message was, hey, look at how good I am at praying. Why do you pray out loud? Why do you want to learn how to pray out loud? Like in your small group, you're like learning and you're like, I, I want to be able to pray like my small group leader. Why? Is it for recognition of others? Is it so that others form opinions about you? What's your why when you pray? Now, I think this is pretty easy to understand a little bit about why. The opinions of others are more influential than God because I see the people in front of me. I'm talking to the people in front of me. They're there, right there in front of us. But when my heart starts to get that suction cup desire that I want others to think about me in a certain way, when, when I start to take a God-created desire to be heard and to be recognized and to be acknowledged, like God created you that way, it's not wrong to have those desires, but when you're acting out of that motivation to get that from other people rather than from the Lord, you're looking for it in the wrong spot. Because Jesus speaks negatively about hypocrites who desire to be heard by people, we can be tempted to believe that these longings are selfish and sinful and wrong when in fact they're not. What Jesus is condemning is their longing to have those needs met from the wrong places. And so people were using the prayer time to inflate the opinions of others about them. You, you've seen this happen, right? You've seen, you know how you might have even done this before. Because I want to be seen as somebody who's devoted to God, when I pray, I change my tone, I change the speed that I'm talking, I change the volume, I use words I never normally use. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank you for your omniscient, omnipotent goodness to us. Don't be impressed by that guy. Don't learn to pray from that guy. 
Jesus is saying, listen, if you want to be heard in prayer, if you have this longing to be noticed in prayer, pray to me. Pray to me in secret. That, that's where the reward's going to come from. Pray in that way. Rip the mask off any sort of religious hypocrisy. It's not what God rewards. So that means you might have to rip the mask off your giving. And as you check your heart, you begin to realize, I'm giving because I want to try to impress others. I slip it in somehow, right? I get the change at the Starbucks place, and I wait until the barista's looking, and then I throw it into the jar so that it clangs really loud, right? Nobody ever does that. Maybe you're just seeking the applause of yourself. It says, don't give so that your right hand knows what your left hand's doing, right? or left or right or whatever. The point is, as you give, don't give in such a way that, that your left hand then pats itself on the back. I'm so good, I gave today. When you pray, you might have to rip the mask off because you pray more often in public than you do in, in private. Really, the only times you pray is when somebody else can hear. You never actually pray when it's just you and the Lord, or rarely. Or maybe you, your prayer life is more and better in reputation than what it actually is. Rip the mask off that, repent of that, and begin to seek a different kind of motivation. And this is where we end today. Here's number three. Live for the Father's reward. Live for the Father's reward. Look at verse, verses 3 and 4. It says, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand's doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And then verse 6, But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Simply stated, righteous activity motivated by seeking the Father's pleasure alone is what I have been made to experience. In both Jesus, examples, Jesus tells us those who are blessed live in a certain way. He, and he defines the motivation about how we do these things. Jesus wants you to be motivated by faith in what he's saying. He wants you to live out of counting on your heavenly Father to be ever truly present and watchful. Nothing is lost on God. He sees the smallest act of kindness, and Jesus is saying that when he sees that in secret, he will reward you, which just so boggles my mind and amazes me. God takes me so seriously that he's willing to actually reward me as if my small gifts and my weak prayers mean something to him. Jesus says yes. In the example of giving, he says this, be motivated by the fact that your father who is sees in secret will reward you. There's a reward, and that should motivate us. It's not that we should not seek reward. Actually, the epitome, I think, of kind of pharisaical thinking is the idea that, wow, I don't do it for the reward. I just do it because it's the good thing to do. Liar, liar, liar. I call balderdash on that. Everybody's motivated by something. And Jesus says, be motivated by the reward that the Father wants to give you. And he reminds his listeners who God is. He's the Father who sees in secret. 
So we often are tempted to think that God doesn't care about us personally, that he's not watching our lives, that he's not really paying attention, that he's just kind of created things and and just kind of released it. That's deism, and that's not the Lord. We live as as if God is distant, not close, or with us. We're tempted to think he doesn't care about what we do, or if he does, it's just to make us do the thing he wants us to do. But we don't ever think that he's watching to reward us. Can God truly be interested in rewarding us? Absolutely. Our Father is intensely interested in us as His children, not just His creation, His children, whom He loves to reward. When we think no one is there and that nobody cares, our God, the Father, is watching even in those secret places. And here he's inviting his listeners to give up the inadequate and elusive reward that we try to extract from other people and give in such a way that we receive a response from the Heavenly Father. What is the reward that God wants to give us? It's himself. It's responding to you. It's meeting the longing he created in you to be seen and recognized and known and to have intimate relationship. And he's the one that wants to reward you with his presence in that way. That should bring a tidal wave of freedom. Thank you for the shout. That was the correct response. God desires that we participate in his generosity by giving to others so much that he is committed to be present and active in every action of our giving if we do it out of a trust in him. And then in praying, the same thing. He repeats that the, that the Father's in secret and he sees in secret. God's paying attention. He doesn't need your prayers to be done in such a way that he's searching for you on the street and he doesn't know where you are. He's already actively listening to you in the private places where no one can hear. In your thoughts, in your aches and feelings and longings. Jesus tells us that our Father will reward us when we pray to Him in secret. And in context, this means the reward is being truly heard and responded to. Let me just show that. In the first part of the passage, Jesus says the hypocrites have received their reward. They are seeking to be seen by men, so they are reward. The reward is that they have been seen. And then here it says in the second part that Jesus says that it continues the idea of seeing that God sees in secret. And when we pray to him in secret, he rewards us by true, being truly with us and being seen by him. It's like this. It's like a little child who comes running into the room and has a need, and so he runs up to his father, and he sits on his lap, and he begins to just spurt out all the words about what he needs. And the father just sits there, enjoying the child not frustrated, not upset, not distracted, not looking at it, just, just focused on the child. Now, whether or not the father is, gives the child what he asks for, what is the reward of that situation? The reward that the child has is not the answer, it's the relationship. And Jesus is teaching us, live for your father's reward. 
The reward is that you are seen, known, and loved more than you could ever imagine. The reward is that you gain the presence of the Father when you pray to Him in secret and give to Him in secret and, and do any righteous act in secret. God rewards right heart motives, not religious activity. So check your heart. Rip off the masks and live for the Father's reward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come today to this passage of Scripture where we know that we have been called to righteousness that exceeds religious activity. And, oh Lord, we cry out because we need your help. We need your help in these things because even once we come to believe in you and are motivated by you to do righteous acts, Lord, our motives can get really twisted and turned. Lord, when we check our hearts, we see that so many times I do the right thing but from the wrong place. Lord, when we see that, help us not to just put on more masks and make, them more, make up more stuff. But to really open the reality, admit to the truth of it and say, Lord, I'm a sinner and I need your help. Lord, when we do that, help us to believe what you say, that you want to reward those who repent and who live out of right motivations, who are animated by the motivations that you want to instill within our hearts. Lord, would you help us to long for the reward that comes from the Father, most of all your presence. For our righteousness comes from Christ and our identity is Jesus. So Lord, teach us to abandon our heart from anything that would steal from that, anything that would seek to grab onto those things and be motivated only by you. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen.